0: Before we turn to Luke, I want to call a quick audible. Um, Let it never be said that Presbyterians are slaves to their uh, liturgy and forms. Uh, It struck me as we were reading our Old and New Testament readings today uh, that about two years ago we began as a church reading through whole passages of Scripture. We think that that is a good thing. Your session thinks that that's a good thing so that we would see not just the depth of particular Scriptures but the breadth of it all and the way that it works together. And that means that from time to time we read through passages like uh, Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 14, where we're reading about things like which animals were clean and unclean and which you could sell to a foreigner but not eat yourself and all these other things. And it might seem like a strange thing to some folks to come into Christian worship and spend our time walking through some of those uh, details and those texts in the Old Testament. But I hope you saw a connection in the New Testament reading as we read it, because what those were for, in the Old Testament time, for the church in, uh, in Israel, it was a preparation for Christ who was to come. You notice that there was that statement in Deuteronomy, that these you may sell, but not eat, because why? Because you are a holy people unto the Lord your God, In 1 Thessalonians, you'll recognize it's one of the benedictions that I use, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, the word there is make you Holy. May the God of peace himself make you holy completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you as faithful, he will surely do it. That was a preparation, a time where the people in the Old Testament age were given external circumstances and, and ceremonies to remind them of their holiness and their standing before the Lord. And now in the New Testament days, those things have passed because the fullness of Christ and his holiness, his sanctification on our behalf has come. I hope you see that, and I hope you're encouraged as we continue to read. through the rest of Deuteronomy, and we may see other laws to us seem, uh, this is a bit archaic, this is, this is strange, why are we reading this? This is to prepare God's people for the holiness and the truth that is to be found in Christ alone. And now for our second sermon. Uh, turn with me uh, to Luke. We're continuing in our, our studies through Luke's gospel, and today we made it into Luke chapter 9, continuing in Luke chapter 9. You will recall over the last several weeks, we saw uh, a declaration of Christ's impending death. We saw the the presentation of his uh, his, uh, transfiguration on the mountain with some of the disciples. And then last week, looking at some of the failures of the disciples. Well, that theme is going to carry on today as we read, beginning in verse 46 and reading through verse 50 of Luke chapter 9. You can find that on page 867 as the Holy Spirit continues to teach us about our own failures and our own weaknesses as we identify some of uh, what is in us in the disciples uh, with the Lord. So we're going to be reading today Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 46. And before we do that, please join me in prayer that the Lord would bless this reading and our study together today. O gracious Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things from your law. Give us ears to listen, to hear hearts to obey, Uh, give us hearts that are softened by your word, take away the stony rock uh, of sin uh, that grips our hearts and give us hearts of flesh so that we would be pliable in your hands. Lord, make us your people, shape us after the image of Christ, even as we read your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, Last December, ABC News in Los Angeles ran an interview with an orthopedic surgeon there in Los Angeles talking about the rising epidemic of what he calls selfie wrist. You can imagine from the name what selfie wrist might be, but he discusses it as uh, as a form of carpal tunnel syndrome that comes about uh, through the repeated stress of holding your phone out for the perfect portrait. He talks about the the dangers of, of that hyperflexion of your wrist and and how that can Uh, damage the tendons and the nerves and and they become inflamed and talked about some of the symptoms to watch out for to see if you might have selfie wrists and even gave uh, a few, uh, he called them the queen's wave, a few exercises that you can do to strengthen your wrists and to reinforce uh, proper selfie ergonomics. Now that ought to be enough uh, of an expose of just the ridiculousness of our own pride. Uh, But what I found more interesting in that interview was a secondary interview. It was with a a young woman named Tina Choi. Uh, Miss Choi is only 29 years old, and she was being treated for selfie risk. She said that she suffered such severe pain uh, from taking so many selfies that she was often unable to work. That's a problem, um, because uh, Miss Choi works in digital media promotion. Her entire job, day in and day out, is helping her clients, whether individuals, influencers we might call them, or, or companies, try to build their brand using social media. She teaches them how to, to gather in customers in the form of social media followers. She is a savvy young woman who understands social media. She believes in the power of the selfie. She talked in the interview about the way that a good, she called it a successful selfie, could help her clients raise their profile and increase their income. She said, it's really about telling a story. The story of where you're at and what you're doing and how active you are. Do you hear that? It's about telling a story. In other words, it's about telling the world the story you want them to know about you. It's a little bit of self-promotion, isn't it? Showing how interesting and how valuable you are to the world so that everybody else will think, how interesting and how valuable you are. But the problem is that far too often, most of us think that we're far more interesting and far more valuable than we actually are. As Christians, you would think we would know this by now. We don't, uh, but we should. The whole basis of our faith, our entire confession, that is the fact that we all fall short of the glory that God created us for. That we go uh, into and walk through life bound by sin so strong that only the death and resurrection of the Son of God can set us free. We know these things. This is the story that God tells us about ourselves and His Word. And yet so often, like the fool who walks away from the mirror and forgets his face, we forget who we actually are, and we are blind to the absurdity of our self-conceit. Now, J.C. Ryle said, That of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought be so humble as the Christian. And it's true. We know it's true. We often find ourselves arguing like the disciples. Maybe not out loud. Maybe internally arguing. Maybe with ourselves, wondering why others can't see the greatness in us that we know is there. Wondering how we can get a little bit more self-promotion and to put our our best foot forward so that others will think well of us and and look well upon us and, and, and want to promote us as well. So I think we ought to be thankful for this passage today and the way it exposes the absurdity of our pride. Just how foolish it is as we see some of these disciples walking with Christ and having an argument among themselves. This is what it's about. It's about exposing our pride and and calling us again to walk in humility with Christ. There are, in these verses, I think, two principles of Christ-like humility. One of them has to do with our personal pride or personal humility, and and another one has to do uh, with humility in our associations, those that we gather ourselves together with, even, even other Christians that we gather with. One is about personal greatness, and the other one is about participation in the gospel. So we'll begin uh, with these apostles talking about personal greatness. They were concerned uh, with their own greatness, so much concerned that even as they walked with Christ, verse 46 tells us that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Here we see how stubbornly blind our pride can be. Remember the flow of the narrative that has led us to this point. We have just seen last week, we saw these men... Uh, unable to cast out a demon. We saw them rebuked for their faithlessness. We saw them failing to understand Jesus' warning that he is about to be handed over as he spoke of his impending death. This is not a moment to strut around and and to think about how great they are. This is a moment to sit in silence and humility and see how they might follow humbly with the Lord. But what is the discussion that takes over as they walk? Which one of them will be the first one to be inducted into the Disciple Hall of Fame? Which one will be counted the greatest? Which one will have uh, the best stats at the end of the day? Maybe they're talking about uh, which one God thinks is the greatest, or which one man will think is the greatest, or which one Christ loves the most, but it doesn't matter what the, what the rubric is that they're using. They are, they are blind to just how prideful they are. We don't know who started the argument. We aren't given the details, but we've been in situations like this. We've, we've volleyed for our own uh, personal position, and so we know how it might go. Maybe it was, it was the three who were up on top of the mountain with Jesus. Maybe there was a, a certain air of superiority wafting through the communion of the disciples. They, after all, had been with Jesus. They saw what nobody else had seen. Surely they were a little bit, a cut above the rest of the disciples. Maybe they were all thinking about how wonderful the kingdom was going to be when Jesus marched into Jerusalem and claimed the throne of David. Wasn't that what they just said about Jesus? And maybe like we like will see in just a little bit, maybe like they did later, they were starting to wonder, well, who will get to sit on the left? Who will get to be at the right hand? Who's going to be uh, an official in this new kingdom that hasn't yet materialized? And it's so satisfying to imagine their future greatness. They begin to indulge those thoughts. They begin to bring them out. They begin to speak about them. You know what happens in a group of of various people, each speaking about their own greatness and feeling like they are not being uh, seen and and valued for what they really are. When when pride takes over your heart, especially in a group of other prideful people, it creates this unrest, this sense of of chafing restlessness. that until others see and value you the way that you see and value you, there's a a certain discontentment, isn't there? And the amazing thing about this discussion that they're having here is that this is not the last time it will happen. This is not the most inappropriate time that they will have this discussion either. This is a, a pattern of behavior that we'll see with the disciples over and over again. In fact, at the end of Jesus' ministry, in Luke chapter 22, as they gather in the upper room around the table with the Lord, as he's breaking bread with them, as he's telling them about his death all over again, and and, and what it will mean for them, again we find Luke chapter 22 tells us, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. See, that's the way pride works, doesn't it? It creeps into every situation. Every conversation that you have, it has that ability to turn it all into an opportunity for self-promotion. I think actually a selfie is a good way to think about it. Spiritually speaking, imagine imagine the person who goes to the Grand Canyon and stands on the edge there in front of those enormous vistas and see all of the colors and the the deep ravines stretching for miles and miles. And then imagine that person going over and snapping a picture of them standing by the sign that says, Grand Canyon, just so that everybody else will know where they are and what they're doing. Here are these men, in a sense, sitting next to Christ in the upper room, walking next to Christ, watching these grand vistas, and they're talking about, well, I'm the one that's here, aren't I? Don't you see where I am? Don't you see what I'm doing? Don't you see what we're doing for the Lord? And and I wonder which one of us is going to be counted the best. That's the way pride works. It sneaks into every situation and turns us inward to ourselves rather than Christward. Pride explains the way that we can sometimes come out of a Sunday school class and congratulate ourselves for that very insightful comment that we made. Here we are opening God's word and I wonder what people will think of what I said there. Or maybe this week we were silent, but we can at least congratulate ourselves. Well, at least I didn't say something like, you know, whoever it is over there. And We can be proud that we, we kept our mouths shut. Maybe we'll be counted as a, as a wise person because we didn't say anything. Or, or maybe it explains the way that secretly we, secretly we imagine the way that others will be impressed by our prayers in a small group explains the way that we want others to look at the behavior of our children and think they must be doing something really well at home. They must have their act together. And I think you know that chafing sense of restlessness that craves recognition, that always wants to be known, that always wants to see others respect us and be impressed by us. Maybe they'll be impressed by your humility. Isn't that the foolishness of it? Maybe they'll see how humble you are, the way that you're self-effacing. Maybe they'll, they'll fawn all over. You know, so-and-so never thinks of themselves. They always think of somebody else first. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And our heads can grow and our hearts can be hardened. And the way that we're prideful, even of our humility, that's the way that it works. It longs. A prideful heart always longs for personal recognition. Not so with humility. Humility is content to be overlooked. It is content to remain unrecognized. It is content to spend time ministering to those who cannot advance our position in the world. This is what Christ tells us, and this is the first principle of Christlike humility, that Christlike humility is satisfied to play the role of the servant. Take a look in verse 47. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, doesn't even have to come out of their mouths, the sin, Begins already in the heart. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, <clears throat> took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. Don't mistake what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that you can find salvation by being kind. To children, He's not saying that the greatest thing you can do in the church is to volunteer in the nursery, although it's very good, and you should speak to Mark Taylor and and Lynn Taylor if you'd like to be a part of that. He's not saying that we get close to God by being kind to children. He brings a child in in order to knock the legs out of the pretensions of uh, of his apostles who are walking around strutting their stuff around him. And it works so effectively because even in this culture where uh, these are, are Hebrews, remember, and, and they believed that the family was important and, and they believed that children were God's gift, yet even in this culture, children were the most insignificant people you could find anywhere. They were down there with, with those who couldn't care for themselves, for, for the, the lame person begging by the side of the street, the one who can't contribute anything to society. They were, they were insignificant in the extreme. You recall that time that Parents wanted to bring their children and and have them get close to Jesus, and the disciples didn't ask. They just assumed. Jesus does not have time for children. There's no possible way Jesus, the Christ, would want to spend time with your little kids and get to know them and get to hug them and get to kiss their foreheads. Jesus doesn't have time for that. And the reason is that all of the leaders of the day taught that interacting with children was wasteful. One One rabbi said four things that would bring a man to ruin. Sleeping late in the morning, drinking early in the afternoon, consorting with common people, and chattering with children. And so in the culture of the day, day drinking was the same as talking with children. It was wasteful behavior. It was sort of licentiousness. Nobody who wants to get ahead in the world spends their time dealing with little kids. Having a conversation with a child in this society was seen as less than useless. Folks, you need to think also of the angle of the Roman, uh, the the Gentile culture that Luke would have been writing into. They didn't even see children as God's gift. In fact, if you had a child and you didn't want them, that's fine, just expose them. We're beginning to see our culture shifting a little bit in that way, aren't we? Some These infanticide bills, that a child will be born and then there will be a conversation to to see what happens with that child. Well, This is the culture already. You don't have to care about children. You don't have to care that that God has given you a gift of a new life in your family. You You can take them or leave them. It doesn't matter. It's up to you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Bring in this child, the one that nobody cares about, the one who's insignificant. Humility is the one who serves the needs of others rather than the ambitions of the self, even when it means you might not get ahead for what you're about to do and who you're about to help. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. What's the point? The point is there's a way of serving others that really serves ourselves. There's a way of of gathering in others so that they will see us and they will think well of us. There's a way of being hospitable so that others will come away saying, you know, so and so really puts on a big spread. Isn't that a wonderful thing? When we go to their house and we have, oh, they bring out all the best things. Don't invite those who will think more of you and better of you and will advance your standing in the world. Don't invite those that will get all over their social media and say, oh, you should taste the, uh, the fondue that we had at, at so-and-so's place. Don't do these things. Jesus says, don't serve others to serve yourself. Instead, when you give a feast, invite the poor. Invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind. Share with those who cannot increase your following in the world. Share with those who cannot repay you. And when we welcome the least of these, when we are uh, open and hospitable, when we're caring for the needs of the least of these, Jesus says we're actually giving our service to the Lord. You notice what he says there. He who receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. You catch the note there in that that verse that draws us back to the mission of Christ. He traces kindness to children in Christ's name. Whoever gives a cup of cold water to the least of these in my name, that's the idea. What's the motivation? Are you you one of Christ's children? And because of that, you want to share with those in need. He traces that all the way back to giving uh, to God himself, but he he also speaks of the mission. Here he is with his apostles, and apostles, remember, means sent ones. They said, I'm sending you out, but I'm sent as well. I've been sent in the world, he would say, I think, to draw in a kingdom. He came as one who came to serve. Jesus came into the world to gather a people who, who did not, in the eyes of the world, make his kingdom look more splendid. Remember what Paul writes to the Corinthians. Consider who you are. And it wasn't a cut down, it wasn't a put down, it wasn't a... Uh, to make them feel bad about themselves, Paul simply said, let's think the reality of things. What does God choose in the world? Does he go out and does he typically choose all of the the rich and important and powerful people in the world? Or does he choose those who are at the bottom of the ladder? No, no, no. God chose what is foolish in the world, Paul writes. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised. God chose the things that are not. That's the kingdom that Christ is gathering. He's gathering a whole group of spiritual nobodies in order to show the world that true greatness doesn't come from what we can work for ourselves, but it comes as a gift from the Lord. It comes as we are attached to Him. And Jesus is calling His disciples to walk in the humility of that same kingdom mindset. He's calling them to live in the world as servants rather than cabinet officials. He's calling them to be content to take the lowest place and to care for the lowest people. And that's the challenge for us in in Christ-like humility. I was reading and studying this week, and I came across something that was challenging to me personally. It said simply how many Christians in our contemporary culture, perhaps especially uh, in suburban Boston, the rich suburbs, the, the, the Metro West, we'll call it, but where we live, where we find ourselves, how many of us actually have somebody that we can think of who fits into these categories, of the poor and the downtrodden and those who are hurting that we have any any kind of uh, regular interaction with. Do we know what it is to do what Jesus is calling us to do here? It's not children, maybe. It's not the way that we think of children, at least in our circles. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. But who is it who is the least of these that we can reach out to? That's the challenge here to turn our pride and our ambition upside down, to to serve those who can't advance our standing in the world. That's what he's calling us to, to take the servant's place. Christ is teaching us that the one who is least among us is the one who is great. Notice, though, in verse 49, it tells us that John answered. We don't have to go any further than that. (laughs) John answered. There was no question being asked, was there? And yet he's connecting what he's about to say to what Jesus has just said. John connected this teaching about personal recognition with an incident uh, where he was convicted, I think, of gospel partnership. That's part of the problem. Uh, We're not sure if if John is uh, is coming with a question of his own or if he's coming with a confession. And the story is so sad that he tells that, that I think it's best to think that he's confessing. Jesus has just spoken about being open to others in Jesus' name. That's the catchphrase, and it jogs John's memory. He says, you know, we saw somebody else doing wonderful things in your name. And how did we treat them? He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now consider for a moment what John's telling us. He's telling us that somewhere in their travels, probably while he and the other apostles were sent out uh, into the various regions by themselves without Christ, as they were sent out and and sent to heal and to preach and to deliver from demons, somewhere in their travels they encountered somebody doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. He was actually doing them. It wasn't like Acts chapter 19. You remember that story with the, the itinerant exorcists who weren't Christians at all and yet... They saw how it worked. The the incantation, you invoke the name of Jesus and out comes the demon and there are the seven sons of Sceva and they try and they fail to drive out demons, they said, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the demon responds, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And beats the men and sends them out naked and bleeding and sore. That's not what was happening. They said, we saw someone and he was casting out demons in your name. He apparently had enough faith that he could do what the prayerless disciples were unable to do in the previous section. And Here's a man proclaiming Christ and advancing the kingdom and destroying the works of the devil in Jesus' name. And John says, we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. And that's the issue. He does not say, Lord, we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow you. He said, Lord, we tried to stop him because he is not following with us. He's not part of our crowd. He's just outside our fellowship. And because he's outside of our fellowship, we thought that, you know, he's probably not one who belongs to you either, Jesus. It's another form of pride. It's a corporate pride. It's dealing in those that we associate. It's pride in what we've got going on and, and thinking all those who don't conform to our ways of serving Christ probably aren't Christians at all. Now, sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, application is really hard. Sometimes it's difficult because there are so many layers of history and culture and language in between us and the text that we really have to dig deep and say, what? What is this saying to me? Where do I see this in my life? Does this even show up anymore for us? But here it's not very difficult. This is familiar. Again, J.C. Ryle is helpful. He says, thousands in every period of church history have spent their lives copying John's mistake. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. And they have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. And Ryle's correct. All throughout a church history, there are glaring examples of this. Divisions between believer and believer, not between believer and pagan, but believer and believer. It's, it's the John Wesley being blacklisted in the Church of England because he preached in the coal fields. It's the anathemas in the 16th century between Calvinists and Lutherans, both Protestants, both coming out of the Catholic Church and now reaching across the aisle and saying, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. It's the Covenanters in Scotland hunted like dogs because they refused to worship with a prayer book. And we see that J.C. Ryle is correct all throughout church history, but this is not just a sin of church history. This is a sin that is present now. In fact, this is a sin that is perhaps especially present in Reformed churches like ours. This is the stereotypical way of Calvinists saying, no, we distinguish ourselves by the way that we do not associate with those people over there. And yes, it's a stereotype, and yes, we have our theological reasons, but we ought to understand that there's a little bit of truth behind the stereotype, isn't there? It is a story that I hear from time to time that echoes my own thoughts before I became Calvinistic, before I understood the doctrines of grace. One of the things that kept me from wanting to believe all these things is that every Calvinist I knew was pompous about their Calvinism. And from time to time, I'm pompous about my Calvinism, and I bet you are too, but this is the way that we work. It's a stereotypical tendency for us to say we don't associate with them because they don't follow us. And it doesn't even have to be as extreme as some of these examples where we're uh, where, uh, having animosity towards one another, or we're calling them heretical, or we're, we're, we're labeling them as something or other. Because this is a problem in the heart as well as the hands, isn't it? This is the way that we, we fall into error when we think about or we look at those churches with praise bands. And we congratulate ourselves on the superiority of our traditional liturgy. This is the way uh, that it happens when you get some Presbyterians and some Baptists in a room and the conversation cannot go three minutes, three whole minutes without somebody taking a playful little jab to say, well, you know, we're the ones who get it right. Maybe closer to home. This is the twinge of envy that many of us might feel as we drive home from here today and we pass other churches with nice buildings that we'd like to have. And we think, you know, couldn't we make better use? Couldn't we preach the gospel better in in that building than they can? Why should the Lord be prospering them? Why should He be doing good things for them? Why aren't they coming to, to worship with us? Why aren't they following with us? And that's the way that it works. And we have our reasons. We have our doctrines, and I'm not for a minute going to say that we shouldn't stand for good theology, and yes, there are biblical reasons that I am a pastor of a distinctly conservative Presbyterian church. I bet those are the same reasons that you come and worship here and not at one of these other churches with a building every week. But the point is, Jesus does not go down the rabbit trail of the reasons that the disciples might have for distancing themselves from this other man. He doesn't say that they need to join together, either. In fact, he doesn't even begin there. He simply deals with the pride of their conversation. He simply says, don't forbid him. Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, in chapter 11, uh, Jesus is going to say something that sounds almost exactly opposite. He's going to say, the one who is not for me is against me. And that seems like Uh, contradictory statements until you understand what Jesus is doing. He's simply saying there is no middle ground. Those are not logically inconsistent if you understand that there are only two camps. You're either for Christ or you are against Christ. You're either against him or you are for him. There is a dividing line and Jesus is saying don't make that line too fine. Don't, Don't draw it too closely to yourself. He's trying to get them to let go of some of their prideful spirit of exclusion in his church. He's reminding them, this is the second principle of Christ-like humility, that we ought to rejoice wherever Christ is honored. Not only in our own little enclave, not only here where we gather together and we think that we have everything right, and we, we do, actually, think that we have everything right. I didn't say that we have everything right, but we think we have everything right. That's why we do it the way that we do. But he's telling them, even in that, even as you go about through the world and worshiping me in your particular way, in the way that you have understood these things, don't draw the line so closely to yourself that you say, everybody who doesn't follow us is clearly outside the camp. What does humility say? Humility says, wherever the name of Christ is lifted high. Wherever sin is exposed, wherever the gospel is preached, wherever saints are gathered in from the world wherever they are taught to love and follow Jesus, that is a church worth praying for. That is a church worth encouraging. That is not a church worth being territory about. That is not a church worth opposing. That is a church that we ought to encourage because they are reaching people that we are not reaching. They are preaching to people that we are not preaching to. They are growing and loving Christ and following Him in a way that we are not, quite frankly. And that's okay. Christ is simply saying, wherever he is honored, we ought to rejoice. It doesn't mean that you have to worship there. It doesn't mean that that we have to have joint services all the time. But it certainly ought to give believers a charitable spirit toward one another wherever they are found. Think about it this way. In Romans chapter 14, Paul deals with Christians uh, who have some pretty big disagreements over a few non-essentials of the faith. And that's the key there. There is a really sloppy way to apply this passage in Luke and saying, well, I guess everybody's in then. As long as you're not actively out there opposing the gospel, you must de facto be a Christian. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's he's talking, I think, about within the pale of those who profess Christ. He's dealing with non-essentials rather than what do you believe about the life and death of Jesus as Savior. In Romans 14, Paul's dealing with Christians who have different opinions about some non-essentials. And some believers there are arguing over what's lawful to eat and what's unlawful to eat. Apparently, they were reading Deuteronomy in their services as well. And with the authority of an apostle, Paul could have simply written and said, this is what you can eat, this is what you shouldn't eat, end of discussion, everybody who disagrees is a heretic, get out of the church, but he doesn't do that. What does he do? He deals with the pride of their discussion. He says, Romans 14, 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Where do you get off thinking that you're the one who gets to determine what their discipleship looks like? It's before his own master, he says, that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's what the apostles forgot in Luke chapter 9. They approached this other man with the thought that, that his discipleship had to conform to their ideal. That he had to be a part of their little group or else he had nothing to do with Christ. And they forgot that he was serving a master far greater than them in their discipleship. I think Jesus is telling us the same thing. The difference is notwithstanding. If there are other believers who serve the same master as us, we are already on the same team. The one who is not against you is for you, he says. And that means that humility ought to rejoice wherever Christ is honored. Now, these are the two principles that we find in this passage. One, that humility is content to take the servant's place. Secondly, that humility rejoices wherever Christ is honored. I think what remains for us is to, is to see not just how these disciples needed to hear these lessons, but how we need to hear them as well there are essentially two ways of reading the passage that we just read today in Luke. There is a way of reading this passage that actually encourages and and reinforces our pride. We read this and we say, can you believe that they would do that? Do they even know the first thing about discipleship and walking with the Lord? Don't they know that Christ is the one who came to be a servant, and how could they possibly think to exalt themselves? We can read this in a way that simply looks down on on their failures and their faults and their sins, and we can again come away smug and satisfied that we would never be so pompous as to argue for our preeminence, at least we wouldn't do it out loud. Or we can read these passages with humility. We can read this not just to, uh, to recognize the sins that are in others, but so that we would recognize how much of their sin is in us as well. We can read this so that we would learn, if nothing else, that our problem of pride is so deep in our hearts that nothing less than a transplant can cure us of it. You see these apostles, pre-resurrection, that's what they needed. They needed the fullness of the coming of the Holy Spirit. They needed new hearts transformed by Christ. Nothing else could do it. That's the only answer to our pride. Folks, you cannot achieve your way out of pride. It doesn't work. We can't scrap a little bit harder. We can't dig a little bit deeper so that eventually we can become proud of how humble we've become. Pride doesn't die through achievement. Pride only dies through confession, through surrender. And that means that the only answer for our pride is the cross of Christ. John Stott said it this way, He said, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin that I'm bearing. It's your curse that I'm suffering. It's your debt that I'm paying. It's your death that I'm dying. Nothing in the history or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. And until we have visited a place called Calvary, but it's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. That's what we need. That's how our pride dies. It dies when we recognize Jesus' humility on our behalf. We begin to confess that it's because of our pride that all this had to happen. When we connect what he's done with who we are, the fact that he came uh, to change us, that he came to give his life as a gift for us because we couldn't work our way to him, Again, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. That's a pretty good summary of what we've read today. Do nothing out of rivalry, he says. And John replies, Master, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do nothing out of conceit, Paul says, and they say an argument arose among them as to which one was the greatest. This is exactly what we're reading, what Paul is talking about here, rivalry and conceit. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the key. It's the transformed life. It's the heart transplant, or to switch metaphors, it's the brain transplant. Have this mind among you, which is yours. That's what he says. If you are in Christ, this humility belongs to you. The humility of the one who was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The mind of the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The mind of the one who being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has exalted him. Why? So that God, the Father, would be glorified in all creation, not just in our own little corner of Christendom. You see, this is what we're talking about today, and this is how Paul says we need to deal with our pride. We look in faith to the Son who became a servant in order to save us from our pride. We look to his cross where we've been delivered from our twisted, sinful, self-absorbed hearts. And we look to his empty tomb until we recognize that actually Christianity isn't about us and our tiny little tribe. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ. It's about the one who was greatest because he made himself least of all and servant of all. And if you are in Christ, this mind is in you. And you've been renewed, and the old is gone, and the new has come. And now Christ calls you to confess your pride to death, and to walk with Him in humility. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, we pray that you would keep us looking to the cross, so that we might pour contempt on all of our pride. We pray that you would do it in us as you renew us by your spirit, as we see your truth in your word. We pray that you would do a work in us even as we come to your table. And are reminded that none of us comes because we're worthy, but because you have drawn us. Because of your invitation. Because of your kindness to draw in those who are poor and lame and blind beggars like ourselves. To invite us to your banquet, to invite us to your feast. But Lord, you are the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so make us, even around this table, content to be your servant, content to rejoice wherever you are glorified in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come now to a table which proclaims to us again the gospel of Jesus Christ, the humility of the one who came and took up the form of a servant and gave himself as a ransom for many. The reality is that when Christ told his disciples that the one who was least among them is great, he was speaking of himself. He was the one who was least. He was the one who came to serve. The one who washed the feet of his own disciples, who should have fawned all. Of